Welcome to Brandon Avat. Uh, today we are delighted to be joined by one of the world's most famous philosophers, I'd say, David Edmonds. Uh, many of you will have heard his uh, luscious voice on Philosophy Bites. He's also the author of Wittgenstein's Poker. And uh, we're going to be talking about the inciting incident in that book. The book was Wittgenstein's Poker. It was a very long time ago. So I may have problems remembering it, which is ironic because the book is all about memory and philosophical memory in particular. So it was about an episode that took place on October the 25th, 1946, just after the end of World War II. And Karl Popper had been invited to give a talk at the Cambridge Moral Science Club. The chairman of the Cambridge Moral Science Club was then Ludwig Wittgenstein. Popper had newly arrived in the UK. He'd been in New Zealand through the war years and he was invited to deliver a philosophical puzzle. Now, this annoyed Popper a great deal because it was clearly written, the invite, by Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein believed in puzzles. Wittgenstein believed that so-called philosophical problems dissolved in the analysis of language. And uh, Popper didn't believe in puzzles. Popper believed in real philosophical problems. So he went up to Cambridge and he uh, titled, titled his talk, Are There Philosophical Problems? And the meeting lasted only 10 minutes or so, and it didn't go well. What I particularly like about the way that you covered the story um, in your book and in your podcast uh, is how emotional the encounter was between the two of them. And often I think people, when they think about philosophical uh, arguments or philosophical disagreement, it's very cordial and uh, everyone sort of uh, gets around a table with a cup of tea and smiles on their faces. But this sounded like a very different kettle of fish. It was very aggressive. In the audience was Russell who you know, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century. They both, both Popper and Wittgenstein had complicated relationships with Bertrand Russell and Popper in particular was very keen to impress him. Uh, amongst the students, there were a bunch of Wittgenstein acolytes. Wittgenstein tended to have disciples. So it had a, a bit of the atmosphere, I think, of a football stadium and they were sort of cheering Wittgenstein on. But for Popper in particular, there was a, a great deal at stake because Popper had, um, as I mentioned, spent the war years in New Zealand writing a book called The Open Society and Its Enemies. Um, some people joked that it should have been called Open Society by one of its enemies because Popper didn't really like people disagreeing with him. But he had had much of his family wiped out in the Holocaust and some of the problems he was addressing uh, the kind of um, society we should have, what, side, what kind of government there should be. These matter to him and politics matter to him and fascism and uh, totalitarianism matter to him. They'd had very, very real impact on his life. And so the idea that philosophy was merely puzzles, as Wittgenstein claimed, was deeply offensive to him. So Wittgenstein had his own sort of interesting life. I mean, he was, you know, you've got these people with these incredible philosophical careers, but also these very engaging personal lives. Can you tell us a bit more about, about him? Yeah, Wittgenstein had a quite extraordinary background. 
he was the son, the youngest child of a steel magnate. His father, Karl Wittgenstein, was one of, if not the richest person in the Austro-Hungarian empire, had been a mover in the Austro-Hungarian industrial revolution. There had been eight kids, five boys, three girls. Three of Wittgenstein's brothers killed themselves. He had a very domineering Ludwig Wittgenstein, a very domineering father. Karl was extremely strict. And uh, he um, went, eventually he was, he, he was taught at home. Then he went to sort of a grammar school. Then he went to study in Berlin. And eventually he just showed up in Cambridge and he banged on Bertrand Russell's door and said, basically, I want to be taught by you. And there's a famous anecdote when um, uh, Russell um, is talking to him and Wittgenstein won't leave him alone. And, and Wittgenstein says to Russell, am I an idiot? Because if I'm an idiot, I will become an engineer. And if I'm not an idiot, I will become a philosopher. And Bertrand Russell said, well, you know, I can't really judge whether you're an idiot or not. Go back to Vienna and write something for me. And Wittgenstein went back to Vienna that first break, the Christmas break, and came back and presented Russell with a paper. And Russell claims to have read one line and said to Wittgenstein, you must not become an engineer. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure there's an element of truth to it. Uh, it's probably, and elements of that story have also probably been exaggerated. Uh, uh, probably parts of it are apocryphal. But, but Russell basically encouraged Wittgenstein to turn to philosophy. And that's how Wittgenstein's philosophical career began. And quite soon, Russell was in total awe of Wittgenstein and was telling Wittgenstein's sister that he expected the next great step in philosophy to come from Ludwig Wittgenstein. So what was Wittgenstein's contribution to philosophy and how does it relate to this disagreement um, between him and Popper? So my understanding is that pre-Wittgenstein philosophy was practiced in quite a classical manner, especially by Russell. Um, and uh, then Wittgenstein came along and changed the way many philosophers thought about the subject. He's interested in the nature of the, of the relationship between language and the world, really. But most people, when they talk about Wittgenstein, divide his career up into two. There's the early Wittgenstein and the later Wittgenstein. The early Wittgenstein was very much within a kind of um, Russell framework. Russell had tried to convert um, uh, mathematics into logic. And uh, Wittgenstein was very interested in this logical project. And Wittgenstein thought of language as a mirror onto the world. So that ling ling linguistic propositions like there's a cat on the mat somehow literally in, um, kind of pictured, well, literally is the wrong word, but pictured reality. So when you say there is a cat on the mat, that somehow was a picture of what actually existed in the world, if it was true, if it wasn't true, it was a false proposition, but that's how propositions worked. They pictured reality. Later on, he uh, once he'd written his book, the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, the only book he ever published, the only philosophy book he ever published in his lifetime, he thought he'd solved all the problems of philosophy and he gave up philosophy and became a gardener. He was an architect for a bit. And then he began 
to rethink philosophy and he began to think he'd got it all wrong. And he came up with a much more anthropological view of language. He didn't think that language had to mirror reality. His new way of thinking about language was to think about how language is actually used by communities. And um, rather than ask, uh, if you want to know the meaning of a word or the meaning of a proposition, what you just need to do is just look at how it's used. How do groups use language? Because language is a tool. So he, he then made this anthropological turn and began to think of language as a way in which humans communicate. And it wasn't necessarily connected with reality at all. I mean, it, it made sense that there was a kind of link because if you got your maths wrong, then bridges would fall down and it would be a disaster. But actually, the way language worked was how people used language, and there was nothing more to it than that. If we look at someone like Popper, he also strikes me as someone who had these two quite different philosophical careers. So he starts off as a philosopher of science, um, and then later, as you as you sort of alluded to, he writes um, The Open Society and Its Enemies, and he turns to, to modern liberalism. Can you tell us more about those two aspects of Popper? Sure. So they're more connected than you might think, because... As you say, he begins as a philosopher of science. Like Wittgenstein, he's from Vienna. Part of the tension between Popper and Wittgenstein is that Wittgenstein is this incredibly wealthy man. And Popper is from a middle class family whose uh, family wealth has been wiped out by hyperinflation of the 1920s. Popper is on the edge of what's called the Vienna Circle. These are a group of logical empiricists and they are interested in the new science, the science of Einstein. And one of the things that interests them is how this science can be absorbed into philosophy. How can relativity theory be understood in philosophical terms? How can philosophy help this new science? Popper was interested in all these questions. The logical empiricist, the Vienna Circle, had this idea that propositions to be meaningful had to fulfill one of two criteria. Either they had to be analytically true, for example, all bachelors are unmarried men, or they had to be empirically verifiable. For example, water boils at 100 degrees. And propositions that weren't in either camp were literally meaningless. So claims about God, claims about aesthetics, claims about ethics, that murder is wrong, literally meaningless because they were neither tautologically the case, analytically true, they weren't true in virtue of the meaning of the terms, nor could you verify them. Now, Popper objected to this characterization of um, the application when it was applied to science, because he thought you couldn't verify science, you could never prove it. You could never prove that all swans were white. Why couldn't you prove it? Because however many white swans you counted, you might then turn around the corner and there would be a black swan. No number of white swans proved that all swans were white. And so Popper came up with this, what's called the falsifiability criteria. What was important if something was gonna be scientific was not that it was provable, but that it was falsifiable. So you made a, a scientific claim when you made a, a theory, when there was a theory, a hypothesis that could be falsified. Water boils at 100 degrees centigrade was a scientific claim and you could disprove it. 
if it turned out the water didn't boil at 100 degrees centigrade, well, that was not scientific. Now, there's a lot more I could say about that, but let me just move on very quickly because time is short. So let me talk about the connection between that and his politics. And one of the reasons he was a Democrat, he's quite difficult to characterize in political terms. There are elements of conservatives, conservative thinking in, in, in Popper and elements of social democracy. But one reason he was so opposed to totalitarianism over and above the human rights issues is that totalitarianism doesn't allow for falsifiability. The great thing about democracy is that things can, if things go wrong, you can point them out and say, we've made a mistake, we've tried this project, we've tried this policy, it's been a disaster, let's try something else. Now, in a totalitarianism system, they, that doesn't allow for that. And because Popper believed in things being attested and then falsified, he wanted an open system in which policies could be changed, tinkered with. He believed in piecemeal change, not revolutionary change. He'd seen the disaster of revolution in Vienna. He wanted piecemeal change, but he wanted claims, policy, policy claims that could then be tested. And if they didn't work, you could then try something else. And that's what democracy allowed. So that was the connection between his philosophy of science and his political theory. So now you've got uh, Karl Popper who arrives on the doorstep of Wittgenstein um, and Wittgenstein has much looser views um, of the nature of philosophy than, than Popper does. And Popper thinks that these very stringent requirements on how claims should be um, assessed and um, Wittgenstein doesn't subscribe to this. And now there's this meeting, there's this clash of minds and what happens? Why was this? I mean, we can see kind of the setup uh, you know, between these two clashing philosophies and two clashing personalities is ripe for conflict. What, what right. then happens? So I'll tell you what's happened. I wouldn't characterize it in terms of wider and narrower, but they had very different conceptions of philosophy. That's certainly the case. So Popper begins his talk, are there philosophical problems? And he comes up with various ideas. He thought, for example, probability. What is probability? Does it exist in the world or is it, is it just a subjective um, lack of knowledge that humans have about the world. Um, he thought that was a real philosophical problem, not just a puzzle. So he suggests various um, ideas for philosophical problems and Wittgenstein dismisses them all. And at one stage, Wittgenstein gets so agitated that he picks up the fireside poker and he's gesticulating with it. And then he demands an example of a moral principle. They've moved on to morality. And Popper says, thou should not threaten a visiting lecturer with a poker. Whereupon Wittgenstein, if you believe Karl Popper, throws the poker down and marches out of the room. And if you take Popper's version of events as gospel, Popper is left victorious on the field of battle. This is the Popperian account, and it was so important to Popper that he begins his intellectual biography, Unended Quest, which comes out in the 1970s. He begins his intellectual biography with this triumph over Wittgenstein. So what happened in 1998, was that this famous story, which had never really been 
questioned publicly. This famous story was repeated by uh, one of Popper's acolytes called John Watkins. And a Wittgensteinian who'd been present at the meeting called Peter Geech, quite a well-known philosopher, wrote to the Times Literary Supplement and said, Popper's account was a lie. He used the word lie. The following week, somebody else wrote in and said, I was there at that meeting and this is what actually happened. And the following week, remarkably, this was 1998 and the meeting had taken place in 1946. Remarkably, the following week, somebody else wrote in and said, I was at that meeting and let me tell you what happened. So an event over half a century ago was still arousing these uh, strong emotions. And my friend John Eidenauer, who I worked with at the BBC and who knew that I was interested, not to say obsessed with Wittgenstein, he cut these out of the Times Literary Supplement. And he said, Dave, I thought you might be interested in these. And I was indeed extremely amused by them. And I began to research it. And then I took it to a BBC producer and I said, I've got quite a lot of work on this. Would you be interested in a, I don't know what I offered, a five minute, seven minute radio package? And, and the producer whose name I will not, I will not name her. She said, no, I don't think there's enough in it for a seven minute radio package. So I was so annoyed, irritated by this. I went back to John and said, damn it, let's write a book. And so we got a 250 page, or whatever it is, <laughs> or 300 page book out of it. And we, we began by trying to track down all the witnesses. There were probably 30 people in the room that evening and we tracked down about nine eyewitnesses plus we got testimony written testimony we found in one or two other places so we got a huge amount of eyewitness testimony and we began to tell the story of that 10 minutes and it then took on a, a kind of the, 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 i mean the background is obviously the philosophy the philosophical clash but also the clash of personalities between these two extraordinary people and also Vienna. Vienna becomes very important in our story because they were both from Vienna and we think that Vienna influenced them very strongly. I mean, you really have made a, a marvellous career out of taking these different talents together, right? Where you can talk about the philosophical ideas, you can talk about the, the life histories of these great minds and weave this narrative and then and then the journalistic work as well to sort of say we can't just do this in the comfort of our armchairs we need to go and track these people down we need to find out what actually happened so how did that process go while you were doing the unearthing and the investigating well the sleuthing i love the sleuthing i'm involved in a sleuthing project at the moment trying to write a biography of a famous philosopher and i don't know i i enjoy that part of it. it. I don't know if it's the journalist training. I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg in this case. I think I partly went into journalism. I've been part time at the BBC for, for decades now. Um, uh, and I'm about to give up to become a full time philosopher. But, um, you know, part of the reason I guess I went into journalism, I, I enjoy the investigative side of things. I enjoy finding out things. I'm nosy. I'm extremely nosy. I like coming across old archival discovering paper that nobody else has seen or not seen for 50 years. All that stuff I find very exciting. Of course, I've got a philosophical background. I love the philosophy. 
And um, I mean, I've noticed a pattern in my writing, which is I, I, I'm interested in the idea of genius and in particular kind of crazy genius in a way. I mean, Wittgenstein is a very eccentric, difficult man. I've written a book about Bobby Fischer, who's a very similar personality, a chess player. I'm also, I, I was a chess player in my youth. Um, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, also brilliant and, you know, slightly crazy. And, um, you know, I'm now writing about a philosopher called Derek Parfit, who uh, is a um, also a brilliant philosopher, my old supervisor and a, a highly eccentric man. So I'm sort of attracted by, well, particularly philosophers, but also people who have these um, off-beam personalities, to put it mildly. So often when people um, discuss philosophers, they discuss their philosophies, and you're also investigating their lives. Um, do you see a strong connection between the two? Do you see a strong connection between what they espouse and believe um, and the backgrounds they come from? And does that threaten the validity of what they're saying, the, um, the soundness of what they're saying? You know, if, if we can reduce what they believe to where they come from, does that somehow mar the truth of what they're saying? Well, that's a very interesting question. The extent to which the genealogy of an idea can undermine the idea. It's a kind of Nietzschean thought that, Nietzschean, Nietzsche thought that we could trace many contemporary vices and virtues to Christianity and Christianity had somehow distorted an earlier era and perhaps we should go back to this era. And I, there was this idea that since we can identify where it comes from, that undermines it. Well, I'm not sure about that. I think that's, it may be the case that um, uh, you can explain where an idea comes from and yet the idea is perfectly sound. So it doesn't necessarily undermine it, but I think it's interesting and it might make you reflect on the idea. Um, your earlier question, about whether it helps you understand the ideas. Well, I definitely think that biography is important in the interpretation of philosophical ideas. There are some philosophers who do philosophy in an, an entirely ahistorical way. They think you can just look at the text and somehow uh, look at the problems the text is trying to address, and that's all you need. But I think that's a very um, poor way of doing philosophy. And um, the background to the idea and the personality of the person who's writing about it can bring insights about the philosophy and certainly about how to interpret the text. So to give you one example, in the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, um, Wittgenstein doesn't talk about ethics or politics or aesthetics. And you might be tempted, a, a superficial reading of early Wittgenstein might be that he thinks that those are not important. But an understanding of the life of Wittgenstein and the personality of Wittgenstein would, real, would make you realize that that hypothesis, that interpretation was totally wide of the mark, that he was obsessed with ethics. He was obsessed with 
his own morality and actually his own sin. And he was obsessed with aesthetics. He thought that the great writers and, and the great musicians, Beethoven and Mozart, they were the gods. They were our gods. And um, you know, they were the great humans. And the idea that he didn't think aesthetics and ethics were significant is to misunderstand his project. Um, he thought they were precisely what mattered. And an understanding of his personality and where he's coming from I think helps you interpret uh, the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus and also his, his later work. And I would make that claim about almost every important work of philosophy, that an understanding of where they come from, where they sit in history, the kinds of problems they're responding to, the kind of uh, the other philosophers who are around at the time, all those are very relevant if you want to understand their philosophy and what lies behind what they're trying to argue. So the figure that you spoke about earlier, Bertrand Russell, the, the author of the history of Western philosophy, plays this interesting role between these two titans and himself had had quite an interesting life story, right? Uh, there's a there's a wonderful uh, graphic novel called Logic Comics, uh, where Wittgenstein plays a, you know, a central role and, um, and, and Russell plays a, a big role as well. And Russell's parents, I gather, also kind of had quite innovative views on marriage and love and you know he had written um on sort of alternatives to traditional marriage when we think about the way that philosophers lead their lives um how are the ways in which we sort of take their work seriously is there a sense in which if they were they were living in accordance with their works we should take it more seriously um do the quirky bits sort of detract from the theories oh there's a lot in that question as well so there's been some empirical studies about whether philosophers are any better human beings than anybody else, and in particular, whether ethical philosophers are any better than um, uh, non-ethical philosophers and other uh, ordinary people, civilians. And unsurprisingly, the, the empirical evidence seems to suggest that they're no, they're no better. I mean, I guess in some ways, um, for example, moral philosophers are probably more likely to be vegetarian than the average person in the street. So there are some ways in which they differ, but on the whole, uh, they're probably not a morally superior uh, set of human beings. But uh, I think that's not to detract from their moral philosophy. Um, Bertrand Russell did all his great and early work as a young man. That's not true of all philosophers. Immanuel Kant produced many of his great works when um, in, in the latter part of his life. But Bertrand Russell had this very mathematical philosophy. Um, most math mathematicians and physicists produce their great work early on. Russell was the same. And then he turned to more popular philosophy. I think these days, philosophers who are categorized as public philosophers, popular philosophers, um, receive a lot of abuse from the academy and they're sort of poo-pooed and not taken entirely seriously. I mean, the great thing about Bertrand Russell is that nobody could not take him seriously. I mean, he produced these very important philosophical work. And so the idea that you could denigrate him because he then became a public philosopher and wrote books about marriage and books about education and all, books about 
books about religion and so on, you couldn't denigrate him as, as, as being not serious because he was clearly one of the great um, philosophers of the 20th century. Um, so uh, um, I guess, uh, you know, if, if you can do what Russell did and, and make very important contributions to philosophy, it's then easier to turn to public philosophy and, and not feel the wrath of the academy. So one of the, the great contributions that you've made to both philosophers and non-philosophers is your podcast, Philosophy Bites. And um, that, that medium specifically seems to translate um, brilliant minds into a platform, onto a platform, into a medium where most people can digest what their ideas. Um, in a very short time frame, your, your episodes are under 20 minutes generally. Um, how has that process been taking these great minds from the academy and placing them into a medium which is digestible for the layperson? So we got in there very early. I actually didn't know Nigel very well when we began, my fellow podcaster, Nigel Warburton, but I'd seen him give a talk and he asked very sensible questions and he asked the questions just at the right time. And they were succinct and so on. You know, you two are very good at it. And it was clear that he was very good at it as well. And I, I spotted that immediately. I was having difficulty getting philosophy commissioned at the BBC at the time. I subsequently, after Philosophy Bites, they then became much keener on philosophy. And I got many more philosophy programs on the BBC. But at the time I was getting, uh, finding it difficult to get philosophy commissioned. And I thought, well, we're in a new world. I don't need to rely on the BBC as a vehicle for philosophy. So I approached Nigel, who's much more technical than I am and does all the podcast side of things. And I do, um, I've got all the editing skills. So we were quite a good combination. And we got in there very early. So we've been going a long, long time now. There are lots of philosophy podcasts now, but you know we were ahead of most people by, by several years. And so we built up a very big following. We've had an incredible number of downloads now. I, I don't know, it's 43 million downloads or something like that. So it's. It's a, it's a very popular thing. They are under 20 minutes, but they don't start under 20 minutes. So it, they're, they're actually heavily edited. Um, and and they're, you know, we plan them and we think them through and we have a kind of trajectory of an of a interview. I think it's the case with most philosophers that when they're speaking about their topic, they speak about it much more clearly than when they're writing about it. They can't qualify every sentence and there are some philosophers who, I won't name them, who I can't read. I can't read on paper. They're terrible writers, but actually they're great communicators in person. And we have some of those people on the podcast as well. And I'm very pleased about that because we're able to bring some of their ideas um, uh, to a wider audience. And of course, we began this just as the podcast world was opening up and it's a global world. And philosophy is a global subject. It's not parochial in any way. I mean, we'll, we tend to have more Anglo-American philosophers, I guess, that's our background. We, we, we haven't got many continental philosophers, partly because we're dealing in the English language. Um, but we've, yeah, we've got a global audience out there and we get something like, I think a quarter of our audience in the UK, but most of our listeners are probably in the US, but we have listeners all around the world. Uh, and we, we now only podcast, an interview a month, but we've got this incredible archive of hundreds and hundreds of interviews. And when I was at university, I, I was very fortunate. I was in this system where I had one-to-one -one tutorials. Um, 
with supervisors and I would get eight lessons, eight tutorials a term. So I'd get taught for, you know, eight hours by a great philosopher. I think now the way I think about philosophy bites is it remains essentially a hobby for us. But I've taken literally, I don't know, seven or eight philosophy degrees now because I've had these one to one tutorials with hundreds and hundreds of, of philosophers. And if you have to pay the fees that you now have to pay in the UK and the US and elsewhere, you know, I've saved hundreds of thousands of pounds having this free tuition from some of the best philosophers in the world. I mean, that's exactly the view that Jason and I have, which is, you know, we're two guys with laptops in you know, the southern tip of Africa. And we get to speak to some of the most incredible minds in the world. Um, and it's amazing how philosophers are so open as well. And we speak the same kind of language. I've found that there's a sort of a strangeness to the way that we are, but we share it. And there's a way that we we like clashing swords. We like disagreeing with each other. You know, we like covering the sort of darker areas of things, things that are unexplored. Um, and that's so much of the delight. Are there, are there particular guests over the many years that you've been doing Philosophy Bites that stand out where you think, wow, what a wonderful conversation. I'll name one. He's called Quentin Skinner. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a political theorist, historian of ideas, a totally brilliant man. I mentioned that I edit most of my interviews. There's only been, I think, one exception, and that's Quentin Skinner. And that is because he is impossible to edit. He has this almost photographic mind. He's got this fantastic command of detail. We've done interviews with him on Hobbes and Machiavelli. And he talks in quite long sentences with lots of subordinate clauses. And often when I'm editing, I might take out some subordinate clause because it's not necessary to the core of the argument. But every single one of his subordinate clauses added something to the sentence. And I didn't want to remove it because it was interesting or useful. And so did I take out an um and an ah? Possibly one or two, but essentially the interview you hear with Quentin Skinner or the two interviews you hear with Quentin Skinner are the two interviews we recorded. And that makes him pretty much unique. So this was our experience with one of our guests who we're interviewing for a second time this evening, David Benatar. Um, David has an incredible facility to say exactly what he means in the shortest possible time. And it is remarkable. Uh, most of our guests, we do have to edit. They're still brilliant minds, but there are, there are ways to shorten the episode so that it's more concise and still conveys the same message. But you cannot edit David Benatar. Everything he says is, is conscientious and purposeful and, and thought through. And by the end of the episode, it feels like you have exactly the message that he intended. Yeah, well, that's very rare. We've interviewed, I don't know how many hundreds of philosophers, but... 300, maybe more, 400. I don't know how many philosophers we've interviewed. Hundreds of philosophers. And there's only been one for whom that's been true for us. So the other thing that you've done is to take some of your favorite episodes and then turn them into text. So there's three Philosophy Bites books. And I, I'm interested in that with something that Jason and I are, are currently exploring, which is to take someone who might be very hard to read 
to then have a conversation with them where they are pitching it at a non-philosophical audience, but people that are interested, people that kind of like the idea, and then to take that and convert it into a book um, and polish it and sort of make it, you know, readable because not all conversations come out, you know, the way that you'd like to read them. But then you wind up with a book that is very accessible. And the thing that we sort of wondered about as well is whether you just have a, a different kind of audience. So the kind of person who wants to engage with philosophy while they're on a long car drive, you know, these audio formats are just perfect for them. Um, but we found that some, let's say, academic philosophers said, oh, I, I can't watch a YouTube video or listen to audio. I want a book. I want to hold it in my hand. I want to be able to pass through it slowly and digest it slowly. Have you found that the response that you've had to the, the written versions of your show and the, the audio versions of your show are different? response has been different the market is obviously different the podcasts have a much wider listenership than the books have a readership so uh, if i don't know if you've published books before but if you've published books you'll know that books just on the whole don't sell so philosophy books have got a very respectable sale numbers but it's not harry potter you know so we're, they're not flying off the shelf but there are people who want to go over an idea. And the thing about podcasts, you can always replay a podcast, but people tend not to replay them. They listen to them once, but sometimes they contain quite complicated thoughts. And the great thing about a book is that you can stop and think, or you can go back a page and um, read the idea again. You know, there was a reason the book was invented. The book is quite a useful product. And so, you know, they've all sold reasonably well. We published them with Oxford University Press. As we talk, the fourth book is rolling off the printing presses. This is a book that we haven't edited. It's been edited by a woman philosopher called Suki Finn from London University. And the book is called Women of Ideas. And it's based on Philosophy Bites interviews. And for those who are old enough, it's a kind of play of words because there was uh, a series called Men of Ideas. Now, this was an extraordinary venture in British TV back in the 1970s, where a great philosopher called Brian McGee used to interview top philosophers for an hour on TV. Philosophers like Isaiah Berlin and Hilary Putnam. And you would never, ever get that commission these days because commissioners want gimmicks and they they they, they want um, ways of kind of catching the audience and 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 the idea that you could just talk to somebody a, a top philosopher for an hour with just kind of room lighting and, and 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 no kind of cutaways or anything like that inconceivable but uh, Brian McGee had this series called men of ideas but it wasn't entirely men of ideas they had one woman who was called Iris Murdoch, the novelist and philosopher. So he should have called it Men and Women of Ideas, but it was called Men of Ideas, even though it had one woman. So this new book is called Women of Ideas, and it's only um, transcripts of women philosophers who've been on Philosophy Bites. And as you were suggesting, although they're based on the Philosophy Bites interviews, they have necessarily involved quite a fair amount of editing because what makes sense in a podcast or on a video won't always work on the page. So 
Suki did some editing and the interviewee did some editing. So it's a different kind of product, but nonetheless, it follows the trajectory of the, of the interview on the podcast. Have you found that there's a battle of the sexes within philosophical ideas as well? Um, so this is not something I've ever thought about, probably because there aren't as many female philosophers, but do you find that there's some sort of alignment uh, in, in philosophies between men and women? I don't know. There are probably more women philosophers in some areas of philosophy. I mean, of course, you'd expect it in certain areas like feminist theory and so on, uh, probably political theory, probably ethics. Um, it's interesting how this occurs and whether there's some kind of uh, kind of sexist mechanism which is going on in the background to separate men and women into these different areas. Um, philosophy has a terrible problem with sex and gender, um, very badly represented among women. And we have always done our best to try and write that balance a bit. So we have a lot of women philosophers on Philosophy Bites. There's a problem, uh, there, there, there's an issue at the moment with um, trans rights, which is very, very complicated. And we've addressed that a couple of times on Philosophy Bites. It's probably the most hot potato issue that there is out there. And philosophers are dealing with it as well as other people. But it, it, it divides people in the way that no other issue seems to divide people at the moment. And yeah, as I say, we've done a couple of interviews on, on that. So that's, uh, that's part of the, the gender or the sex wars, I guess. So one of our favorite guests, Rebecca Tuval, um, wrote this quite famous or infamous paper on transracialism and transgenderism, where she took the view that we ought to protect the rights of transgendered people. And there are other people who are also transracial, um, and we should afford them the same levels of dignity. And for this was sullied and, you know, attacks on, on, on a profession and calls for the um, Hypatia, the journal which published her to unpublish the paper. Um, and I wonder if there's been a sort of change in the show over years. In other words, the kinds of guests that you can have that maybe you felt a freedom to discuss certain topics. And then you hit this unexpected invisible landmine and you think, can we, can we have this conversation? Is it still safe for us to talk about this? I don't know. I think what happens in society generally is that you get these very contentious issues and then somehow a consensus settles down. And what is contentious is just a product of its time. So there may have been a case time where capital punishment was an issue that moral philosophers discussed a great deal. But if you look at moral philosophy papers back in the 1960s, there's a lot of stuff on capital punishment, which is just a done deal now. You know, there's almost nothing on capital punishment anymore. And maybe we'll reach some kind of consensus about trans rights. It's certainly a, an area which is uncomfortable. I think, well, what we want to do anyway is have a proper philosophical discussion in which the tone is respectful. 